Welcome to Books in the Wild, the podcast about exploring books. I'm Carrie Schroeder. Today we're on the hunt for missing punctuation. Like many letters, and even entire words, quite a few punctuation marks have been lost to modern English. In this episode, we're going to track down some forgotten and elusive marks, from the mysterious pilcrow to the playful interrobang. Today have a very exciting noir-themed audio drama filled with questionable acting and an unforgivable amount of punctuation puns, and I hope you are as excited as I am. Believe it or not, punctuation and the alphabet didn't come together in a set. Much like the can opener being invented about 50 years after the introduction of canned food, punctuation arrived a few centuries after the development of written language. Our story begins in ancient Greece, because English is a language that uses the Latin alphabet, which is derived from the Phoenician script, which was adopted by the Greeks around the 9th century BCE. This Greek alphabet was all uppercase letters. We didn't have lowercase letters until a few hundred years later. And in fact, upper and lowercase letters weren't even called upper and lowercase until about 2,000 years later. But that's a whole other story. So back to the Greek alphabet. The letters were all uppercase, or majuscule, if you want to impress your friends. There were no spaces or punctuation between letters, and it was meant to be read in what we call booster feed-in, or ox-turning method, which means that you start reading at the upper left part of the text, much like we do now, but when you get to the end of the line, instead of going back all the way to the left and reading the line below, you would drop down directly below and start reading from right to left, which was written backwards, of course. This turning motion of reading from left to right down, right to left down, left to right, mimicked the turning of an ox plowing a field. With a little bit of practice, this ox-turning method of reading is supposedly faster and more efficient than how we read today. You can save a fraction of a second with each line by not having to go all the way back to the left margin to continue reading, and you're also less likely to lose your place, having less distance for your eye to travel. I say we should try to bring it back. I say we all take a moment to write a letter to the grammar police, or whoever makes decisions about these kind of things, and explain how the booster feed in style of reading is really the most optimal eye-tracking performance pattern available. We could be reading 25-30% to 30% faster. That adds up over time. For example, if you've read Fifty Shades of Grey, booster feed in style, instead of single direction, then you could have 25% of that time back in your life. But back to the development of punctuation. After the development of the Greek alphabet, for the next five to seven hundred years, written language looked like walls of text with no spaces or breaks. Laws and official announcements were carved into walls like one big drunk text. Then at around 200 BCE, the Hellenistic Greek scholar Aristophanes of Byzantium, a grammarian, librarian, and scholar at the Library of Alexandria said, This is bonkers. I'm paraphrasing because I'm not sure what the ancient Greek word for bonkers is, but he recognized that there must be an easier way to read these walls of text. Aristophanes developed a series of marks to indicate to the reader where they should pause. These three markings indicated where one should make a short, medium, or long pause while reading, respectively called the comma, colon, and periodos. Sound familiar? And so it was from this Indo-European tree of language that many branches and sprouts later, modern English bloomed. But now I'd like to introduce one hard-boiled punctuation point here to help me tail the tale of missing marks. Detective Pilcrow, Private Eye. 
The name is Pilcrow. I was once a major player in the manuscript game. I used to be the first mark you'd see. I was an enforcer, taking a lead and showing readers the entrance. And damn was I good. Maybe even too good. I took walls of text and broke them down like Godzilla or King Kong only wished they could. But this was back in the day, before computers, before texting, hell, even before the printing press. Now here I am, all but forgotten in the punctuation world, relegated only to boring legal documents to be skimmed over. Or worse, hidden amongst computer jibber-jabber to be ignored completely, as lost as the city of Atlantis under a sea of typographic curiosities. You know what the worst part is? All you highfalutin characters complaining about the overuse of the exclamation mark or those new confangled emojis. It's a semicolon and an improperly placed parentheses. She ain't winking at you. Anyway, you think that's bad? Try being replaced with an indent. That's right. Just a few blank spaces. Try being replaced by nothing. Most people have forgotten my name. I'm called the paragraph mark by some. Some ignorant folk refer to me as a backwards capital P. It was for these reasons that I started the Pilcrow Private Detective Agency. I didn't want to see any more good punctuation marks fall by the wayside. And the way I see it, it takes a lost character to find a lost character. And I ain't got nothing more to lose. The Pilcrow, a personal favorite of mine. As our mysterious narrator mentioned, you probably best know the Pilcrow as a paragraph mark, resembling a backwards P with a curved tail. You may also know Pilcrow as that thing that shows up when you accidentally hit a wrong key in Microsoft Word, and then it takes you forever to figure out how to change back the view to normal again. But the Pilcrow has been through a lot. Shortly after the development of the markings that would become known as comma, colon, and period, we see early iterations of the Pilcrow used to designate the beginning of new ideas and texts, or to mark a change in subject or passing of time, or, as we know them now, paragraphs. The Pilcrow's form varies through the centuries. At times, the Pilcrow resembled an upside-down capital L, or lowercase slanted Y, but it was nonetheless common in many manuscripts up through the mid-15th century. The Pilcrow was usually written in a different color ink than the body of the text, further emphasizing the shift of paragraphs. These characters were written by hand by specialized scribes called rubricators to perform what is called rubrication, which is the adding of the red ornate lettering in medieval manuscripts. The bulk of the text from these manuscripts would have been previously completed by other scribes who would leave blank spaces for the rubricators to fill in their part. The scribes also included instructions on how the lettering should look in the margins of the manuscript. Rubrication was used to highlight important text and to start new sections of text, so usually the first letter or even the first sentence would be in red ink and or more ornate than the rest of the body of the text. Pilcrows were also rubricated to designate the change in paragraph. Rubrication wasn't necessarily an easy task to perform. Remember, these were in the days before inkjet printers or even printing presses. Ink wasn't even something that you could buy at the store. 
This is a recipe and instructions for making red ink from a book of compiled medieval craft techniques. To prepare white flake, get some sheets of lead beaten out thin, place them dry in a hollow piece of wood, and pour some warm vinegar or urine to cover them. Then, after a month, take off the cover and remove whatever white there is, and then again, replace it as the first. When you have a sufficient amount and you wish to make red lead from it, grind this flake white on a stone without water, then put it in two or three new pots and place it over a burning fire. You have a slender curved iron rod fitted at one end into a wooden handle and broad at the top, and with this you can stir and mix the white flake from time to time. You do this for a long time until the red lead becomes visible. The point is that rubrication took time, patience, skill, and a tolerance for working with urine. And so the rubrication was minimal, used only to signify importance. It's not uncommon even today, as many books still have their opening lines in ornate text, often in a different color, especially if the book is a special edition or fully illustrated. We can also see modern-day rubrication in red-letter edition Bibles, in which all words spoken by Jesus Christ are in red. And even in the case of many Christian church service pamphlets, not only do they use rubrication, but the pilcrow makes an appearance to differentiate between directions to be followed from text to be read aloud. For example, the bulk of the text would be the sermon for you to follow along with, intermixed with pilcrows that indicate when you should kneel or stand or repeat certain parts of the text aloud, a change in action. However, none of these are as common as they once were, because something happened in the mid-15th century that would change rubrication and therefore affect the pilcrow forever. The invention of the printing press. I won't get into the nitty-gritty of printing. I'll save that for an episode about printing. But for all you non-printers, here's a real basic rundown. And for you printers out there, please cover your ears for the next few seconds because I'm about to severely oversimplify this and I don't want to get hate mail. Un unless you want to print it and mail it out. Then I will accept hate mail. Okay, non-printers. Did you ever make those potato prints as a kid? You know, when your elementary school teacher maybe gave you a plastic butter knife to carve your initial into a half potato, as if that were a good idea? And if you managed not to cut your fingers, you could dip the mangled potato into tempera paint and then smash it into a large piece of butcher paper, leaving behind a smushed smear of a letter? Then, if you wanted a second color, you had to clean off the first color or risk turning everything a muddy brown. The same general principles apply with any printing press, except instead of one potato, you have a thousand miniature potatoes of various letters that need to be aligned perfectly. Oh, and they're made of lead. And instead of using the back of a plastic spoon as your brayer, you have a few hundred pound metal and wood contraption to press your paper onto the tiny metal potato letters. And replacing the plastic knife are a whole new array of movable parts to smash your fingers in. What stays the same, though, is that you still have to clean everything off, move around your tiny letters, make sure everything is lined up perfectly, and then press the paper again if you want another color. Now, the printing press sped up the production of books, but they still tried to incorporate many characteristics of handwritten texts. Black letter, for example, mimicked handwriting. And if you don't know what black letter is, just picture the logo for any metal band ever. Another carryover from manuscripts into printing was rubrication. But to do this with a printing press, the body of the text would be printed in black ink with spaces left blank where the red text should be. The red text would later be either added by hand or by doing a separate print run with red ink. Lettering by hand was time-consuming and expensive, and setting up the press for a second run was also time-consuming and finicky, 
especially when sometimes the second color was just to make a single mark on the page. After a while, these blank spaces reserved for pill crows before paragraphs just started being left blank, and readers started recognizing the empty indentation as markers for new paragraphs, hence the invention of the indent at the beginning of a paragraph. And then before the pill crow ever saw it coming, he for the most part was obsolete. Darkness coated the town like a double print of carbon black. I was working on a case when she walked in. Detective Pillcrow? The dame had the kind of curls and curves that brought together clauses. Um, I'm standing right here. She was the type of woman that men wrote similes about. I can hear you. And don't call me a dame. My name is Am. Ampersand. She was sharp as a knife and cut right to the chase. Yeah, I'm still here. Pleased to meet you, Mrs. Ampersand. Call me Pillcrow. So, what's a classy character like you, one with an old relic like me? I asked her. I wanted to discuss her past, the present, and our future together, but didn't want to seem too intense. Okay. Well, I need help finding my friend who went missing recently. His name is Mr. Thorpe. Mr. Octothorpe. Now that's a name I haven't heard in a while. You know him? The guy's got more aliases than a supervillain's phone book. First he's repping for numbers and pounds. Next thing you know he gets a little tipsy and gets sharp. You should be careful joining up with characters like that. I'm a conjunction. It's my function. Oh, ampersand, you little minx. Ampersand is a logogram. A symbol representing a word, in this case the word and. The ampersand form evolved from a ligature of the Latin letters et, meaning and. A little trip down etymology lane tells us that the ampersand is the long lost 27th character of the English alphabet. When reciting the alphabet in school, or maybe during old-timey sobriety tests, or whenever folks from the 19th century might recite the alphabet, it was customary to add the Latin phrase per se, meaning in itself, after standalone letters. It was used to indicate, that's all, folks, before moving on to the next word or letter, especially if a letter could also be a word, like I or A, for example. It was basically a more eloquent version of saying next word whenever we're spelling anything aloud, like B-O-O-K-S, next word, I-N, you get it. And so just like our alphabet now usually ends with X, Y, and Z, and used to be considered part of the alphabet team. It would get confusing, as if this weren't already confusing enough, to say X, Y, Z, and, and. So to indicate to people that you really meant the word and, and you're not just stuttering and, and, people used to say X, Y, Z, and per se, and which over time gets slurred, and per sand, and per sand, and per sand, ampersand. The ampersand's physical form is fun too. It's delicate and curvy. Sometimes the et ligature is still recognizable, like a lowercase et, and sometimes it looks like a bisected backward capital E. Sometimes it looks like a real questionable cursive S. There are so many variations, and yet we still recognize them all as ands which is pretty astounding if you think about it. 
German typographer Jan Schickel was also intrigued by these variations and collected hundreds of examples of ampersands from 1st century Pompeii to the 7th century Book of Kells all the way up to the 20th century in order to chronicle the development of the ampersand. These forms were compiled and released in a book titled Formen von Lungen der Unzeichnen, or The Ampersand, Its Form and Developments, in 1953. But is ampersand really just a symbol for and to be used in the same way? Do we really need to shorten and? Shouldn't we shorten words like, I don't know, ampersand instead? Is it just the illusion of being more efficient? Like how saying VW somehow seems like it's a faster way of saying Volkswagen, even though it's not? The ampersand does have a slightly different meaning than the word and. It's generally considered informal to use the ampersand symbol to straight out replace and, if what you really mean is in fact per se and. But the use of an ampersand actually joins items closer together than just a regular old and. You see the ampersand a lot in shared company names, business partners, or in writings that might have more than one author. The ampersand technically implies that the owners or partners or authors have contributed the same amount of work or share the same amount of ownership. For example, let's say you have Sam and Dean, hunters for hire, as in Sam, ampersand, Dean. That implies that they are equal partners. But if it read Sam and Dean, it would mean that Sam is the main contributor and Dean is supporting, which we all know isn't true. Although this is a loose rule that's often broken, it's still fun. You sure this is where you last saw him? Yes, absolutely. This is Interrobang's place. He was throwing a retro 60s party. I must warn you, though, he can be pretty intense. Past, perfect, or present? More like questionably aggressive. But you'll see what I mean. Hello! Hello, Mr. Interrobang. We're here inquiring about a missing character. It's Octothorpe. He's missing. I'm sorry to hear that. Is that a question, Mr. Interrobang? Why are you yelling? Shh, he can't help it. No worries. Please, call me the Bang. I'm not going to call you that. When's the last time you talked to Octothorpe? Not since the party. He was hanging out with those youngsters. You know, they call themselves emojis. Oh no, not them. Who are the emojis? They're new characters, I guess. Not quite punctuation. They're a cartoonish gang of emotional icons. Oh, they're just awful, Mr. Pelcrow. I kicked them out because after a few drinks, there were eggplants everywhere! <gasps> Disgusting! Just like debaucherous dust bunnies, have we been sucked up to find ourselves in a moral vacuum? I thought to myself. What? Oh, he does this sometimes. It's a clumsy transition, but it means we're about to move on to a new segment. Interrobang? is a punctuation mark conceived by Martin Spector, the head of a New York advertising agency and editor of a magazine called Type Times. In the March 1962 issue, Spector wrote an article declaring the need for a new punctuation mark for exclamatory rhetorical questions. For example, if you wanted to punctuate, he said what? You would usually end it with alternating exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point, question mark, and so on until you felt that the proper amount of incredulous rhetoric was achieved. 
Spectre wanted to simplify this and create a new mark that would solve this punctuation problem. Spectre asked readers through the article to submit design and name ideas for this new mark. Readers sent in their suggestions, and among them were words like ret, explorative, exclamaquest, and enterobang. Enterobang was declared the winner, being a combination of interrogative and bang being a slang term used by printers for the exclamation mark. Next came design ideas. The winner, as you can imagine, was a combination of the question mark and exclamation point. They are overlaid on top of each other, sharing the dot below. It also looks like a question mark bisected by a vertical line. Interrobang became wildly popular in the 1960s, but were relatively short-lived because this was the pre-computer era. If anyone wanted to use an interrobang, it had to be hand-lettered by a designer or manipulated by literally cutting and pasting existing punctuation marks. But surprisingly, that didn't hinder interrobang's popularity that much. Throughout the 1960s, interrobangs could be seen all over advertisements and printed articles. They were so widely in use that in 1967, type designer Richard Isbell included the interrobang in his new font called Americana. It was also added to the new model of Remington typewriters later that year. But then sadly, within a few more years, the interrobang faded into obscurity. Though it still exists as a cult classic punctuation mark amongst retro type enthusiasts, appearing here and there as a throwback to the 60s. And it can still be found in a few digital fonts such as Arial Unicode or Palatino Linotype. The silence was loud enough to shatter itself as I contemplated how to tell Ampersand that her friend Octothorpe might be in real danger. Octothorpe is in danger? Sorry, I forgot I was in exposition mode. <clears throat> it wasn't easy, but I managed to track down the Emoji headquarters, a place called Social Media Center. I think that'd be our best chance at finding Octothorpe. What does that mean? Are you a cake? Is this your purpose? Over there. Is it a bat? Or a vampire cow? Oh, Mr. Pilcrow, I'm so confused. Hey, don't forget about me now. What in the name of Gutenberg are you? You're... You can say. I'm poop. Oh, why? Don't be embarrassed. We all poop, baby. Some cat even wrote a book about it. <laughs> Children's book at that. Even went on to translate it to different languages worldwide. Oh, Mr. Pilcrow, I feel faint. Enough tomfoolery. Where's Octothorpe? Were you looking for me? Octothorpe, not octopus. What is this place? Some sort of Lewis Carroll nightmare? Sorry. Oh, hey guys. What's up? Octothorpe? You seem different. Are you okay? I'm totally fine. Oh, and I don't go by Octothorpe anymore. I mean, you can call me the character formerly known as Octothorpe if you want, but I usually just go by Hash. Hash? Yeah, man. It's kind of like my tag name, you know? But Octo... or Hash... We were so worried about you. Are you being held here against your will? 
Blink twice for yes. Nah, man. I'm just kicking it with my new friends. You gotta reinvent yourself every once in a while, you know? I'm like a master tagger here. You want to see a hamster eat a tiny burrito? Bam. Hashtag too cute. Or maybe you want to see a picture of what your neighbor ate for breakfast. I gotcha. Hashtag InstaFood. I don't understand. Why would anyone want that? It's the way of the future, man. Likes for follows. Likes for follows. What is he saying? That's enough. I think you should come with us. No way! Jeez, you remind me of my ex apostrophe. She could be pretty possessive, too. I'm fine, really. Hashtag love and life. You're probably familiar with a versatile little character that goes by many names. Octothorpe, Hex, Number Sign, Pound Sign, Hatch, or Hash. Visually, they're all the same, but their meanings have changed throughout the centuries. It is believed that Octothorpe's origins began as an abbreviation for the Roman measurement Libra Pondo, which developed into a ligature with a horizontal line crossing the lowercase l in order to differentiate itself from the numeral 1. From then it was eventually simplified into the familiar two horizontal lines bisected by two vertical lines. It is still commonly referred to as the pound sign because of its association with measuring weight. The first appearance of the pound sign being used as a symbol for numbers shows up around the 1850s, as indicated by bookkeeping texts at the time. The number sign, as it became known, was still mostly handwritten. The origins for the name Octothorpe is a little more convoluted, though for me it's the most fun to say, which is why it's the name used in the audio drama. In the late 1960s, Bell Labs was developing ways for the telephone to interact with computers and added two new keys, the asterisk, which they renamed the star key because it looks like a tiny star, and the pound sign, which was renamed Octothorpe, for no discernible reason at all. So let's try to break it down. Octo is easy enough to decipher, referencing the eight points of the shape, or the eight fields surrounding the square. Thorpe is a little harder to figure out. According to one legend, the term was named after the 18th century English philanthropist James Edward Oglethorpe, though why this would be the case is unknown. Another origin story is that Thorpe is the Old Norse word for field, and that the symbol looks like eight fields surrounding a central village, hence Octothorpe. And yet another urban legend of the Octothorpe's namesake originated from the inside joke about an employee of Bell Labs burping. But whatever the truth may be, the word Octothorpe first appeared in a 1972 employee handbook for the Bell Labs telephone company. But as for why they chose the name Octothorpe, one may never know. Other names this little symbol is known by are hatch, as in hatch marks, and hash, which is a disambiguation of hatch. Hash went through another transformation in 2007 when Twitter user and former Google designer Chris Messina tweeted a single groundbreaking suggestion. How do you feel about using the pound sign for groups, as in hashtag barcamp? And thus the hashtag was born. I won't get into the details about metadata, mostly because I don't understand it, but the use of hashtags in one's social media posts makes them more easily searchable, thus connecting more users, as you can search by topic and shared interests. This also means that the hash mark all on its lonesome is sometimes mistakenly called a hashtag, but until it comes in contact with the mashed together word, it's still just a hash. 
This episode is brought to you by Coyote Bones Press. On the market for a miniature Ouija board for your spirit conjuring emergencies? Got an empty space on your shelf where that atomic bomb snow globe should be? Coyote Bones Press has got it all! Visit coyotebonespress.etsy.com and enter the coupon code BOOKS for 10% off your next order. That's coyotebonespress.etsy.com, coupon code BOOKS for 10% off. Coyote Bones, the name and mysterious mysteries that you can trust. Emojis are ideograms, or symbols that represent an idea or concept independent of words. You know them as smileys that help clarify intent or emotion via texts or social media posts. It's helpful in adding meaning to your messages when you have to be brief. Like when your partner texts you and asks if they can adopt three kittens they saw at the shelter, and you type back, Yeah, sure, I think that's a great idea. But the inclusion of one smiley emoji, or one eye roll emoji, can affect whether or not you end up with a house full of baby felines. Emojis differ from emoticons in that emoticons are emotion icons created from existing punctuation and letter combinations. If you want to smile, you just type colon dash parentheses, for example. Emojis, on the other hand, are full pictorial representations of not only emotions, but numerous concepts and objects. Emoji is Japanese E for picture and moji for character. Emojis were first developed by a Japanese cell phone company who were inspired by the symbols used in TV weather forecasts and cartoon icons used to show emotion in manga and anime. The first set of emojis were released in 1998 as 176 single characters. Today, there are now over 1,000 characters available, expressing everything from weddings to aliens to thunderstorms. An interesting thing about emojis is that they can have vastly different meanings, not only due to context, but also depending on your region and culture. For example, the manicure emoji shows fingernails being lacquered. And it was originally initiated in 2015 as just that, painting one's nails, perhaps as a way to communicate self-care or concepts of beauty. But what it has been commonly used for, especially in America, is to express nonchalant self-importance, or simply... Haters gonna hate. You may have noticed that I've used the word initiated for the release of new emojis. That's because, and this is by far the most exciting fact I've learned all week, new emojis are voted on and created by a group called the Unicode Consortium. The Unicode Consortium is an international nonprofit organization that standardizes computer languages, basically. The specifications agreed upon by this organization is what allows our operating system, software, and apps to communicate with one another. They're also responsible for standardizing emojis, so that an Android user can text an iPhone user to dancing girls with antennas, and they get it. So who proposes new emojis to be voted upon by this mysterious consortium? Why, you can. You can go to unicode.org right now and propose a character. Then, the usefulness, versatility, and recognizability of the character will be considered, and it may be added to the emoji repertoire. To tie this back into book arts a little bit, in 2014, artist Xu Bing published a book called The Book from the Ground, written entirely in emoji. Xu Bing's statement on the book was, 20 years ago, I made Book from the Sky, a book of illegible Chinese characters that no one could read. 
and now I created Book from the Ground, a book that anyone can read. Book from the Ground is a hardcover, readily available book that you can find easily online or in many bookshops. At first glance, it looks just like entire pages completely filled with walls of emoji, and it is. Except when you look at each symbol and icon and consider its meaning, a story develops about a day in the life of quote-unquote a typical urban white-collar worker. The idea is that for the most part, regardless of where you are from or what official language we speak or read, we all share this relatively overlooked language that a lot of us use on a daily basis. We send a thumbs up as an affirmation, hearts to express love and comfort, and sad faces to offer sympathy. And although these are not official or formal ways of writing, you wouldn't use them on a research paper or legal document or anything, but they are in their own way valid forms of communication and worth thinking about. As I walked her to her front door, I was overwhelmed with the desire to comfort her, to tell her everything would be okay. Stop that. Stop that right now. I'm sorry about your friend. Oh, it's okay. If oversharing with strangers is what makes him happy, then that's fine by me. Thank you, Mr. Pilcrow, for helping me find him. It's my job, but also, it was a pleasure, Miss Ampersand. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Don't say that. We really can't afford that line, copyright and all. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure it must be in the public domain. Nope, I'm pretty sure we're going to be sued. Well, it's more of an homage, anyway. I, I guess so. Look it up. What do I search for? Try hashtag Casablanca. I hope you enjoyed our time together through the magical world of punctuation. For further reading about punctuation, my recommended reading list is Shady Characters, The Secret Life of Punctuation, Symbols, and Other Typographical Marks by Keith Houston, Making a Point, the Persnickety Story of English Punctuation by David Crystal, and Just My Type by Simon Garfield. And for Books in the Wild, soon-to-be award-winning audio drama, the role of the hashtagging Octothorpe was played by Sean Coca from the Childhood Remastered podcast. Our yelly friend in Tarobang was played by Reverend Jeff Kelly, host of the Squatcher's Lounge podcast. The bubbly octopus emoji was played by Paul from the Varmints podcast. Poop emoji was played by Lafayette Karchner. Birthday Cake and Ampersand were played by yours truly, and my mysterious and wonderful partner in crime, Detective Pilcrow, played himself. Music and sounds were sampled from Free Music Archive or freesound.org. Or if you hear the sound of rabbits running around the background, I probably recorded it myself. Thank you so, so much to my fellow podcasters and friends, Sean, Jeff, Paul, Lafayette, and Detective Pilcrow for lending your voices to this episode. I have links to everyone's podcasts in the show notes, so please, please check them out. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher, or you can send me an email at booksinthewildpodcast at gmail.com, or Instagram and Facebook at booksinthewildpodcast, or just send smoke signals or maybe some homing pigeons. Whichever is your preferred method of communication, get in touch. Sometimes it's nice to know that people are listening and I'm not just forcing people to act out hypothetical voices for anthropomorphic punctuation marks for no reason. Oh, and I'm finally consolidating the reader's notes and episode list so it's all in one place at booksinthewild.com. I'm not really sure why I thought it would be less confusing to have them separate, 
but I have learned the error of my ways, and the episodes have all the information, including links to the reference materials, show notes, and now full transcripts for those who might want such things, like if you want to read along with me for each episode. You can do that now. Hashtag Books in the Wild. Thank you for listening.